What's up, Gator Nation? Hope y'all are doing well. Welcome to another episode of the In All Kinds of Weather Forecast. I am your host, Neil Shulman. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at All Kinds Weather. I am with Dustin Smith, my co-host. You can follow him at I-A-K-O-W, Dustin. Uh, not really the week for a lot of pleasantries because, well, Florida played a football game against Sanford this week, as I'm sure we all know. The Gators did win the game. They did win it fairly convincingly, I guess you can say. At the end, it wasn't like he came down to the final play, but ultimately not the result a lot of Gator fans were looking for. All kinds of records falling by the wayside. Bad records at that. Not the kinds of records you want to get broken were broken by a Sanford team that is three and four in the Southern Conference of the FCS and has to win its last game against Furman just to finish the season 500 in the SoCon. Um, Dustin, we got a lot to get to, so let's let's just start right now. How how are you doing, first of all, and what in the world do you make of that performance? Neil, I'm doing all right. Um... Just uh, glad to be back in the uh, the proverbial studio, if I may, to discuss this game with you. Um, obviously, some some good takeaways. You know me, Neil. You know how much I love scoring points. Um, in fact, I got my start playing football not long before I ever stepped on the field. I got my start playing football with the vi- with playing the the NCAA video game, and my favorite part of playing the game is scoring points and then I got to play high school quarterback and the rest is history so to see 70 points on the board um to see uh, Emory Jones finally do the things albeit against an FCS school but do the things that we've been clamoring him from for him to do all season um it felt pretty good but on the other side of the ball defensively um it really gave the offense no choice but to be uh, lights out and to perform the way they did because uh, the defense played awful. I mean, there was a point in the in the second quarter where Florida was down by 14 points and the score was Samford. Yes, Samford, not Stanford. Samford, uh, 42, and the Gators, 28. The Gators were losing by 14 points to Samford, an FCS school, a school that shouldn't even be on the same playing field as the Gators. But there we sat. Uh, watching a team completely obliterate uh, Florida, especially um, with their offense and our defense. Our defense was routinely out of position. We were routinely uh, not playing to the whistle. We were routinely um, confused and not not being lined up uh, pre-snap. And we continued to blow coverages. We continued to allow guys who were shorter, slower, not as athletic as our, as our defensive talent, uh, uh, get on, get, get in position to, to make big plays and shout out to, uh, their number four, um, Washington. He had an incredible game, uh, 10 receptions for 124 yards and a phenomenal, uh, explosive play and a touchdown for him. So, um, hats off to them, but we, if we have to sit here, and talk about a game against an FCS school and give hats off to their players. Um, yeah, it's not a good we're, sign. We're <laughs> That's just a preview of what's coming. Yeah. So, Neil, um, 
before we we sort of uh you know lay it down onto mullen i know we have a lot to talk about and i'm very looking forward to the things that you have to say concerning the situation in gainesville um that's my breakdown of the game uh i think i wish we wouldn't we wouldn't necessarily have to give such a breakdown um considering we just played and i'll say it for the fourth time or fifth time we played an fcs school there's a reason why they divided the the football bowl subdivision and the fcs Yes, there certainly is a reason that they divide the FCS and the FBS. And after the game was over on Saturday, after Florida had completed its 70-52 to 52 win, I was visibly and very, very, I think rightfully so, concerned about that result. And, and there, there were some people out there who – I mean, the sunshine pumpers, I guess, is is a good label for them, who wanted to know why I was choosing to be negative. Well, you know, yeah, the first half is bad, but the second half, they turned it around. They outscored Sanford 42 to 10 uh, you know, from late in the first half to the end of the game. Why choosing to focus on the negatives? Why can't you, you know, give them any credit? Well, I do give them credit for bouncing back. I do, in all sincerity, I do credit the team for not packing it in and just giving in and allowing Sanford to deal Florida the most humiliating loss in school history. Yes, it would have been worse than Georgia Southern. It would have been way worse uh, because Georgia Southern had NFL talent on that team and Florida was down to its scout team QB. But anyway, the reason why is because the first half was so beyond the point of rational explanation that – I don't know what conclusion there is to reasonably come to other than that this team is not giving its best effort. And on the pod, I like to talk about recruiting from pools of talent and caliber of athlete, but there are levels to that. There, there's, there's a difference between the caliber of athlete that Florida recruits and what Missouri recruits from, or even South Florida or Florida Atlantic recruit from. And then there's the level that Sanford recruits from. You know, there's the top tier that Florida, Ohio State, Oklahoma, Alabama, Oregon, Auburn, Georgia, Clemson, Miami, Michigan, Penn State, you know, that that those top, top, top tier schools go for. And there's a reason that all these schools agree that these guys are worth scholarship offers because they have ridiculous 40 times. They can bench more than any other high school kid in the country. They run the shuttles and the cones faster than everyone else in the country, at least at their position. They dominate their competition in high school. They dominate, or at least they hold their own at stuff like the elite 11 or seven on seven uh, or or high school all-star games and stuff like that. um, And camps, these are the top, top, top athletes. Florida doesn't get all of them for sure, because I mean, there's a reason Florida fans are unhappy with the current state of Florida's recruiting class, because even though this year's class is abnormally bad, Florida's class is currently 22 in the 247 composite rankings. It's not like the previous few classes were elite. Florida under Mullen has never done any better than ninth in the country, which isn't terrible. It, you know, there's still, that's still a top 10 class. You're pulling in one of the top 10 classes in the country, which means that 
you know, of all those, those physical traits with all those, you know, the receivers that have the best ball skills, the quarterbacks who have the best field vision, who can throw the most accurate balls, uh, who can read the field the most, you know, the offensive linemen who can really fire off the snap and, and stonewall the, some of the best defensive linemen in the country, the defensive linemen who are able to make the offensive linemen that they go against look silly. Uh, you know, these top, top, top tier athletes are going to schools that are winning championships or at least supposed to compete for them. The, the most prestigious schools in the country, such as Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Auburn, you know, the ones I just, I just listed off. Then there are, are tiers beneath it. There are the guys, you know, the, the mid to low four stars who have looks from good schools. You know, they, they have offers from, and a Washington offers from UCF. Um, I mean, LSU is, I guess, another top school, but, but Arkansas, Kentucky, South Carolina, Virginia Tech, uh, North Carolina, Tennessee now. You can't call them a top-tier school anymore. They've been irrelevant since the turn of the century. But, you know, Nebraska, uh, I, I guess maybe Penn State's in that crew, whatever. And then, you know, there are tiers beneath that. Then you have you know, South Florida. You have, you know, the mid-majors. You have the low, low, low-level you know, power five schools like Rutgers, uh, I guess Kansas and Vanderbilt uh, and are down there. Then you get to the bad mid-majors, the bad group of five schools. And below that, you've got the FCS. And so with all those levels in between the University of Florida's pool of talent and Sanford's pool of talent, when I say Florida and Sanford don't recruit from the same pool of talent, I'm not delivering that statement with the same context that I deliver it between Florida and South Carolina or Florida and Missouri, because I mean, ultimately Missouri and South Carolina, while they don't get their pick of the litter, they still get some of the more talented athletes in the country. If your family friend's son has a scholarship offer to play at the university of Missouri or South Carolina, or even, even to play football, like at, at Illinois or, or Rutgers or Kansas or Vanderbilt, you're still going to be of the mindset that, wow, that's really impressive. This kid's clearly very successful at what he does. Good for him. I mean, he's not going to play for Alabama, but there's clearly a level of talent and work ethic that got him offers from these Power 5 schools. The talent gap between Florida and Samford is such that Samford's last recruiting class was 182 in the country. Florida's last few classes have all been in the top 15. There is such an astronomical gap of talent between the athletes that Florida recruits and signs and has on their roster and the talent that Sanford has on its roster. And that's not taking away from Sanford because those guys came to play. I mean, they, they were game. Sanford came in and they decided that, you know what? We got paid over half a million bucks as a school, but, Let's, let's go get our money's worth. Let's go put on a show. Let's make some memories for ourselves. Do the best we can. Let's execute to the highest degree possible, and let's see what happens. And they had a lead in the second half against Florida. Sure, that's because Florida did not play well, which is something that we've already hit on multiple times in the first few minutes of this pod and are not going to stop hitting on throughout the rest of it because that's the, pretty much the thesis of this game. But it's also because Sanford came ready to play. So... This game doesn't play out the way it does if Sanford is not ready to play themselves. They were. Let's not forget that. Let's make sure that 
For whatever else we have to say about this Florida team, we do make sure to give Sanford credit. Shout out to their quarterback, Liam Welch, in particular. They came ready to play. Let's not forget that. However, having just given Sanford their well-deserved due, that's not a result that happens if every single player and coach on the University of Florida football program does his job to the best of his ability. That's not a result that's possible, nor for that matter, was getting blown out by South Carolina 40 to 17, but that's already in the past. So the disappointment that comes with letting Sanford break all these records is the disappointment that if Florida comes ready to play and they just have a bad day, if Emory Jones just lets a ball slip out of his hands and it's a scoop and score for Sanford, or if he throws a ball that's just tipped in the air because it was just two or three inches lower than it should have been and is tipped for an interception that gets returned for a touchdown and the game is closer than it should be, it would be disappointing. It would be upsetting. But if Florida were to play badly, but at the same time also be locked in and dialed in and give it all they've got, Florida would have won this game by 40 points. And instead, their defense let Samford break all kinds of the wrong types of records. So, okay, the records we, I, I touched on uh, moments ago. The records that Sanford broke against the University of Florida. Again, keep in mind, with this incredible gap of talent, not necessarily effort because Sanford deserves that. They came in and they gave their best shot. This is what Sanford did with significantly less talent than Florida. 42 points and a half. That is the most points Florida has ever given up in a half ever in school history. Previous record was 38 by FSU in 1992. Sanford scored 52 points. Not only is that the most points Florida has ever given up to an FCS team in a single game, it is the most points that any SEC school has ever given up to an FCS team. And it also ties Washington surrendering 52 to Eastern Washington for the most points that any Power 5 team has given up to an FCS school. Sanford also dropped 530 yards on Florida. I, I can't stop laughing when I'm going through this. It's just, it's just so mind-boggling. Sanford dropped 530 yards of offense on Florida. That is easily the most yardage Florida's ever given up to an FCS opponent. And in fact, that is the 16th most yards Florida's ever given up in school history. And it just missed the top 10. Uh, Mississippi State in 93, Auburn in 1970, Tennessee in 1970, Tennessee in 1984, and Auburn in 1971 all got between 536 and 556. So think about that. Sanford hits just one more big play in the second half. They get 27 more yards. It would have been one of the 10 worst performances in school history. So to allow a school with this gargantuan, Gantuan of a talent gap to drop all these records on the University of Florida. Say it's disappointing. I don't. I don't think is is really accurate. It's it it just it shows me a team that, with some exceptions, you know, there are exceptions to this, but it it shows me a team that, by and large, is just not interested in doing the best it can possibly do. Now, exceptions, Zach Carter, that kid goes out and he balls. He will be a high NFL draft pick. He will wreak havoc in the league. I'm going to miss him dearly. Mohamed Diabate, same thing. He's a year, 
younger than Carter too is younger actually, but he's got one more year of eligibility if he wants it. Um, hopefully he comes back, but if he doesn't, he will be a mid mid ish round draft pick and he will cause problems in the league. Kyer Elam did not have a good game, but ultimately that guy has done nothing but go out and give his best effort every time he's been healthy enough too. So shout out to him, Damian Pierce, that guy balls out every time he touches the ball. There's always a level of anger, a level of, of just fury when he runs with the ball, probably because he doesn't touch it as many times as he should, but there's that uh, Malik Davis, Naquan Wright, Emory Jones does the best he can. I mean, he's definitely got his limitations as a passer, but damn it, that guy goes out and he does the best he can. So he gets credit for that. Um, Ethan White, clear, appreciable upgrade to the offensive line. When he returned from injury, um, I mean, Kamari Gamble, Justin Shorter, though, I mean, there are individual players that go out there and they ball and they do the best they can. And I cannot possibly thank them enough because as a fan, that's all I can ask for. But this kind of result, and this is more on the defense, obviously, than the offense, because th- these are all defensive records, but it happened against South Carolina too. So right now we have a program where only some of the players are going out there and giving it their best effort. Some of them. And football is a team game, man. So when you have some of them who do and some of them who don't, you get the result we got on Saturday where an FCS team breaks several records and toys with breaking several more and falls just short of them. So, yeah, that's it's definitely a head-scratcher um, to say the least. Yeah, Neil. I mean, just to tag along with, with what you're saying, these records should certainly not be broken. Now, on the offensive side of the of the ball, Embry Jones had a game of his own. He was 28 for 34. He threw for 464 yards, six touchdowns. He also added 10 carries, 86 yards, and a rushing touchdown. Embry Jones played great, and of course. Um, as you know, and as, as uh, our, our listening audience knows, my favorite stat of the game um, in terms of offense was actually a zero. Embry Dr- Jones threw zero interceptions. Now, that was due to a technicality. Um, I believe there was an interception that, they, that, that, that took place, but then they called back due to a penalty. And on top of that, there was another throw that probably should have been intercepted. Uh, most teams, uh, in fact, all teams in the SEC would likely have caught that ball. But, you know, Stanford is a Samford. <laughs> I keep on saying Stanford, but Samford is an FCS team. And they, they don't have the defensive talent to play in the same atmosphere as the Florida Gators. And that's why the Gators were able to put up such stats because, again, context as we discuss uh 95 percent of teams in the fbs that play fcs schools when they're when they're up by by 30 in the third quarter they typically put in backups because of the situation that this defense put the offense in the starters had to play most of the game so yeah i can get excited for emory Great job to him, 550 all-purpose yards, uh, both throwing the ball and running the ball. 
Um, fantastic. I'm, I'm not going to put that by the wayside. It's a big deal, especially for him, his family, um, everybody surrounding his situation and all the adversity that he's faced this season. So I don't want to, uh, I don't want to overshadow that. But again, FCS team, Samford. Yeah. You no, got to see the context. It's inexcusable. I, I think a lot of people who are listening to this and, and maybe think that we're being too negative say, well, why don't you focus on the offense? Because the offense was objectively very good. I mean, Emory Jones set the school record for being responsible for 550 all-purpose yards running and throwing. I do credit Jones for that. I do. Because in, in theory, he could have thrown four or five interceptions. He could have just stared down his receivers and thrown right into triple coverage even when the ball clearly should not have gone there. He didn't do that. So he did read the field a little bit. He did take off on some nice runs. He did at least somewhat go through his progressions. Could have been better, sure. But he did do it to an extent. So why aren't we praising the Gator offense? Why are we focusing on the Gator defense? Because Florida's offense did put up 700 yards. And the answer is, I'm as much as I hate just repeating the same line, it's because Samford does not recruit from the same pool of talent that Florida does. Samford does not have the same caliber of athlete on their defense that the University of Florida has. There are going to naturally be holes in Samford's defense that aren't going to be there against Missouri and FSU simply because Samford doesn't have players that can run the 40 as fast or the shuttle as fast, or the cone drills as fast as Missouri and FSU do. They don't have the athletes that can close the gaps a lot quicker. I mean, the holes were there in on the line of scrimmage, at least later in the game. Florida didn't win the line of scrimmage early in the game, but they did, I mean, they, they did battle back to, to control the trenches in the second half. But the holes that are there are not going to be as easy for Florida's offensive line to open up against FSU and Missouri. You're going up against Tremaine Johnson of FSU. That's a very, very different type of talent than the defensive lineman that Sanford had. Tremaine's a lot bigger. He's a lot stronger. He's a lot faster. His hands are a lot better than those of the Sanford defensive linemen. They're not going to be able to win those one-on-one battles with that kind of ease because they're just bigger and stronger and faster. So, yes, I am happy for Emory Jones. I'm happy for Kimori Gamble. Justin Shorter had a great catch along, I think it was around the 7-yard line or so, right down the right right down the hash marks. Damian Pierce ran like a monster. Naquan Wright had a great game. Malik Davis ran like a man possessed. I'm happy for all of them, and I'm happy to see Ethan White back out there. But again, This was what Florida's offense was supposed to do. The defense was the unit that gave us a result that was not expected. And the unexpected result was clearly not a good one. So because the offense gave us more or less what we expected to see and the defense did not, that's got to be the focus because, and this is a good segue into our next topic of discussion. Dustin, if Dan Mullen wants to be here next year i you gotta think he's gotta win it at least one of these next two games if not both of them 
And right now, I don't see a team that's capable of winning either game because, and I, I hate to use the M word, but Dustin, this program is objectively a mess. I think it, it all comes down to toughness. It all comes down to mental fortitude and toughness. It comes down to making a decision that I'm going to play my best on every play that I'm on the field. And that's what it's going to take to win these next few games. Does Florida have the talent to beat FSU? Absolutely. Does Florida have the talent to beat Missouri next week? Absolutely. But will they have the mental fortitude? Will they have the toughness? Will they have the grit and determination to play their best every play? 11 guys on defense, 11 guys on offense for 60 minutes. Can they do that? They have to if they're going to win those next two games. And in a later pod, of course, we'll break down the Missouri game. And then and then in an even more later pod, we'll break down the FSU game. We'll get to it. But in terms of Dan Mullen and what is happening with his tenure right now, he himself is not showing me the relentless effort that he spoke about uh, over and over again uh, when he began to instill his culture at the University of Florida. Just look at the recruiting trail. Now, I do know, again, I'm going to bring up the, the show cause that's put against him where he, he can't uh, travel and, and, uh, and meet with recruits until, I believe, December. Um, because of that situation, he hasn't necessarily been able to recruit. But, again, we've already spoken about it. But, I mean, you look at the, uh, the, the decommitment and the flip of both Raymond Cottrell and, um, and, and Julian Humphrey. Um, you look at those guys. And a big reason why they flipped to Georgia, number one, you know, from a recruiting standpoint, Georgia has the best recruiting program in the country. I mean, they don't have any national championships, not yet to show for, but they're still, based on everything I'm seeing, the best recruiting program in the country. And they are, their coaches are building relationships with players. The, the linebackers coach is building relationship with linebackers recruits. And in, uh, when it comes to Raymond Cottrell, um, our linebackers coach, uh, now, of course, the, the defensive coordinator, um, he was the one trying to build relationships with a, with a, with a high four-star, potentially even a five-star wide receiver in Cottrell. And he complained uh, to reporter that he couldn't build a relationship with Billy Gonzalez. Now, you're probably asking me, why are you bringing this up, Dustin? The reason why I'm bringing this up is a, a coaching staff that has relentless effort would do whatever it takes to give themselves the advantage. And if our receiving coach, Billy Gonzalez, can't even do what it takes to have the competitive advantage to get Raymond Cottrell in the fold and keep him in the fold, close, and get him to sign in, in a little over a year, then we're not doing what it takes on the coaching side of the ball. Now, in that specific circumstance, I bring up Billy Gonzalez, but the organizational processes fall on Dan Mullen. And right now, this team is struggling in terms of its organizational process. It's struggling in recruiting. It's struggling in uh, 
all sorts of areas. We could go on and on with the issues that we're seeing. And right now, the biggest issue that is coming out on the field is this team's ability to play defense. It's also coming out in this in in the the depth chart. Uh, for example, one thing that has frustrated me since early in the season is Damian Pierce has arisen as the most trustworthy and most uh, effective running back in in our lineup. Now we have several excellent running backs, two of which that don't even see the field in uh, Lorenzo Lingard and Demarcus Bowman. We don't see them. They're they're pretty darn good. They're speedy. They're athletic. Of course, we have Naquan Wright. We got Davis um, and Damian Pierce. And it seems like we're in a continual rotation where one drive you play one guy, the next drive you play the other guy. And it makes no sense. And the crazy thing is in the last two games, the first drive that we've had with, uh, with Damian Pierce in the game, he didn't even play. He didn't even get the ball. It, we, we, we literally threw the ball the entirety of those series. D- Damian Pierce is the guy that you get the ball in his hands. In the same way, and I, I, I'm not making a direct comparison, but in the same way, in 2008, you needed to get the ball in the hands of Percy Harvin. Now, Damian Pierce is not even in the same zip code of, of Percy Harvin in terms of talent. I'm sorry, to, uh, Pierce. You're excellent. Harvin is, is different. But in terms of their impact to this, to this team, they're similar in this respect. Pierce needs to play. Pierce needs to get the ball. Pierce needs to have opportunities to wear down defenses. His six, seven, eight carries a game is not cutting it. This is a guy who, who, who and I quote from Steve Spurrier, this is a guy who needs 20-plus carries a game, especially a team that in this 2021 version of the Florida Gators predicates itself on running the ball, okay? We, Pierce needs to get 20-plus carries a game. That's how it should be. He should be the, the de facto starting running back. And then you bring in Wright and you bring in Davis whenever Pierce is tired. And, yeah, I mean, Davis and, and Wright are, are excellent in other phases of the game. And also Pierce, they can catch the ball. They can make plays out of the slot. Do that. I mean, how amazing would it be to have where you have Pierce in a running back, uh, you know, standing next to Emory Jones or, or Anthony Richardson, and then in the slot, you have uh, Davis to right, make a place. Great. I love that. I love that formation. Do it. But it would be you, pretty awesome to see. When you're, when you're taking the best, freak, like, the best freaking player, and I don't cuss. So I'm, I'm going to try my best not to do it in this episode. Um, but when you're, when you're taking Pierce off the field, and you're putting in a guy who is good but not as good, doesn't make any sense. And don't get me started on the quarterback battle between Anthony Richardson and Emory Jones and, and in honor of um, how well Emory Jones, again, against an FCS school, in honor of how well he played, I am not going to bring that up directly in this episode. Um, but even the way that Dan Mullen has handled the quarterback situation, it's been, it's been befuddling to me. The fact that you start a, a, a – uh, the fact that, that your first start 
for your, your red shirt freshman quarterback is against the best defense in the country. And then you, and then you act surprised when what happened at the end of the second quarter in that game happens. And in the same breath, you're not getting this guy experience in, in previous games that would have paid dividends against Georgia or whoever you start him against. I, I think I think I think you're getting what's coming for you. Neil? Yeah, I, I mean the obvious thing with Damian Pierce is uh, yes, I would like to see him play more than he does. I would like to see him used differently than he is used. The difference is the other guys that are quote unquote siphoning touches away from him in Naquan Wright and Malik Davis are very, very good running backs in their own sense. It's not it's not like a Felipe Franks, Kyle Trask situation where one is clearly better than the other and the other is a downright liability at times. Malik Davis and Naquan Wright are just different running backs. They have different strengths. They can catch the ball out of the backfield. They can make the defense have to really, you know, defend them and watch out for them vertically as opposed to just between the tackles and you know maybe outside the C gap every now and then. But these are three different running backs that all do different things to help the Gators win. So I don't love it. I would like to see Damian Pierce touch the ball more than seven times a game. Absolutely. I'm not as infuriated by this as I am with other issues on the team. So this one kind of has to wait its turn. There are so many other huge problems that this team has that I don't even want to spend too much time talking about it. I, I'll mention it. Like I, I will, I will put it out there that I am with you. I am with all the Gator fans that want Damian Pierce to touch the ball more than he does. I'm just saying we kind of have to pick our battles with Dan Mullen, which is one of the, I mean, it, it is the big picture in in Gator football right now. It is one of the hottest topics of debate in in the world of college football right now. And Dustin, I mean, 12 months ago today, we were all high and mighty because the Gators had just beaten Georgia. Yeah, there were the two New Year's Six Bowl game wins the years before. They beat Michigan. They beat Virginia. Finished ranked six and seven in the AP and coaches polls. That was great. There was a little bit missing, though. We had to beat Georgia. We did that. We beat Georgia. We got over the hump. We won the SEC East. We go into that LSU game last year thinking, all right, just take care of this LSU team, and we're finally going to hit our peak. We're finally going to be back to where we should be, even when we lose that game. And then we take Alabama down to the wire and lose. We think, all right, this this batch of players wasn't it, but but we're close. We're close enough that we can – give Mullen another round of reloading to get his guys in and we can come back and compete with Bama again and maybe even beat them. And as recently as September of this year, two months ago, when we took Bama to the wire again and then we clobbered Tennessee, we were thinking, okay, you know, this is not the best year for us because we all thought this is going to be a down year for Florida to take Bama to the wire in a down year and then to pummel Tennessee the next week. We think, okay, you know, we got something going here. Think about how quickly it has unraveled. It's not something I take lightly. I do not like to be the guy that sings a coach's praises 
and then turns on him in the snap of a finger. But the the results since then haven't really left me with much other choice. Florida, aside from beating Vanderbilt, okay, Florida has not beaten an FBS opponent since Tennessee. And Vanderbilt, let's face it, is an FBS team in name only. They got their plates cleaned by East Tennessee State by three touchdowns earlier in the year. So, yeah, they're an FBS team. They are in the SEC. They have the SEC patch, but let's face it, they do not have the the talent profile that Kentucky or South Carolina or Tennessee even has or Missouri has, let alone Georgia or LSU. Dan Mullen, aside from that one game against Vanderbilt, hasn't done anything to generate any positive thoughts about his continued tenure at Florida. It's just astounding. Even Jim McElwain, I don't think, was going to go downhill this fast until the death threats came up. You know, when he did that, that, you know, all bets were off. But had the had his tenure just continued to play out organically and there and there's no fabrication of death threats, I don't think he goes down this fast. Because remember, LSU had just lost to Troy when they when they came into Florida and beat us in the swamp. That, that was a pretty bad loss. And then the week after, Texas A&M comes to the swamp and beats us too. And then Georgia clobbers us. So three losses that were objectively embarrassing because LSU with the Troy loss. A&M, I mean, you you just shouldn't lose night games in the swamp to unranked opponents. And you shouldn't lose by five touchdowns to a rival. I don't think I've ever seen a coach's tenure in college football go downhill this fast strictly because of results because let's look at the results since then you lose to kentucky granted it's kind of fluky you got the blocked kick that goes back for six all right that doesn't happen ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine times out of a hundred thousand that's just a fluke one in a hundred thousand type of things but then an lsu team that had quit on its coach lose to them because you refuse to play the guy that, you know, game tape kind of suggested was better until Florida's already down double digits. And then you lose to Georgia because, you know, Richardson's going to go through some growing pains. Okay, I can understand that. Fair enough. And then South Carolina happens. And then Sanford happens. Dustin, do you think he wants to be here? Do you want the answer that it seems to be, or do you want the actual answer? Because I genuinely think Dan Mullen wants to be a Gator. Now, you, you, you may have a different opinion, but I think he wants to be a Gator. I think based on his actions, it shows me that he's, he doesn't want to be a Gator. So it's kind of it's kind of pick your poison with, with well, Dan Mullen. Don't you think at some point regard. he should act in a way that reflects what he actually feels? You would think. I mean, granted, like you can, he he can have whatever opinion he wants. That's his prerogative. But at some point, shouldn't you act in a in a way that at least somewhat mirrors your true feelings, especially for something as big as I don't know a job that pays you almost eight million dollars a year to do? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, you 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 go back to when Dan Mullen came and the excitement and the enthusiasm. And the fire that he brought to the Gator Nation, 
uh, you know, touting the Gator standard, uh, vowing to bring back former players and, and vowing to uh, do what it takes to, to, to bring the Florida Gators to a championship level. And then to see an, an immediate uh, instant gratification, if you will, in terms of the 2018 season, um, going 10-3 and three with mostly Jim McElwain players. And, you know, Felipe Franks was the starting quarterback for that year. And then to go to 2019 and then 2020, which up until the LSU game, um, although that loss to Texas A&M was bad, uh, that loss was not necessarily inexcusable. It was on the road. A&M was a pretty good team. Florida A&M deserved to win that game. But then, of course, you have the LSU debacle, the shoe throw. And then after that, uh, or I, I think the stat might be including that, uh, Florida is 2-8 um, and eight versus Power 5 competition. Something has taken place. Something is, is misaligned. And whether that is Dan Mullen not wanting to be at the University of Florida or uh, maybe maybe there's some other um, internal dynamics that we're unaware of. Um, whatever it is, Neil, I think it's important to understand that the version of Dan Mullen that we saw when he came, when he first came as the head coach of the University of Florida Gators, um, to where he is now, totally different. And it doesn't make any sense. So, Neil, um, do you have any understanding, inkling, um, idea as to why, you know, not, I mean, we've discussed in, in, in game after game after game that we have a tale of two halves, um, in some games. I mean, against, against, uh, Samford, we had a tale of two halves. The first half was abysmal, especially defensively. The second half, the defense gets it together for the most part and does what a defense should do against an FCS team. Um, at sure. least mostly. But if you want to, if you want to get even more big picture, we have a tale of two Mullins. We have a damn Mullin who came in in his first two seasons, uh, overachieved. Anybody, and even the most uh, uh, fanatic of Gator fans, including myself, in, in those seasons, if anybody would have told us that Florida would go ten and three. And then 11-2 and two in 2018 and 2019, after what we witnessed with Jim McElwain, many would have thought that those people would have been crazy. In fact, many people probably looked at me, and, I, and when I thought that Florida would go um, undefeated in, in 2019. Very hot take. <laughs> they didn't do that, obviously. But people looked at me and thought I was crazy. And I was. But to, to go from that to where we're at now, it, it's, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm, I'm speechless. Yeah. Uh, speechless is probably a, a mood that a lot of other Gator fans share. And, and I think the speechlessness comes from the direct contrast from the Dan Mullen that 
comes off the plane gator chomping, the Dan Mullen that talks about giving relentless effort and everything that I do to restore the Gators to a championship level, and even the Dan Mullen that talks about, you know, thumb wrestling, Let, let's go run stairs. You're going to keep scores. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to lose. I'm going to beat you. Even in 2019, when Florida beats Auburn, and he's talking about, you know what, great win, but we're building for more. We're building. We're building. And you get the sense that, okay, that's a big win for the Gators, but he's not satisfied with just a big win in October. He wants the big win in October to, to yield big wins in November and then in the postseason. But, you know, it, it's just not there. It's just not there for Dan Mullen this year. And now the question is, is it possible for him to get it back? Because if, if Dan Mullen can somehow retrieve that version of him, that, you know, that, that, that thumb wrestling guy, the running stairs, we're building, yeah, great win, but we're building for more. If we can retrieve that guy who not only has that attitude in press conferences, but who implants it in his team and has a team that plays with that mindset and gives us results that match that attitude. There's nobody I prefer to be the Gators head coach than Dan Mullen. The whole reasoning I'm using for, yeah, I want Dan Mullen fired is because I don't think we can get him back because, and, and I'm not even talking, by the way, I mean, we had to at some point address this, but I'm not talking about the fact that the Gators were celebrating in the locker room, you know, getting turned up because they beat Sanford. I'm not even addressing that. I mean, yeah, it doesn't look especially great because you should have beaten Sanford 70 to two. I mean, maybe they snap it over the punter's head or something, 70 to three, 70 to seven, maybe. And you give up 52 points and, and let them break all kinds of records in the process. I don't care about that because I actually think that's a good thing in that it shows that the Florida players at least still somewhat like Mullen. They're at least, you know, willing to dance with him. They're at least willing to, you know, have a little fun with him. So I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the play on the field. And I mean, you, you want to, you want to find examples of the team not playing its best and not having the right attitude Look at the game tape. The guys on defense fundamentally do not know how to line up. They take awful, awful angles to the ball carrier. Some cases, I think they'd rather be picking their toenails than getting dirty and making a tackle. Because some, some of the, the quote-unquote efforts these guys show, and this isn't getting personal. Again, keep it respectful, keep it real. The game tape shows that guys are just lowering their shoulders like they hope to just serve as a medicine ball in front of an opposing running back and hope that the guy trips over that medicine ball that's just happened to sit there. There's no arms, you know, there's no attacking the right hips. There's no, in some cases, there's not even an attempt to go for a leg. It's just curling up into a ball and falling down in front of them. That's not effort. That doesn't show effort. That doesn't show a want to. And then, you know, you got plays like Brenton Cox, I mean, he's the one I'm picking on because that was the example that really stuck out. But the play with 11-15 left in the second quarter against Georgia, there are more plays like that. It doesn't exist in isolation. It happens plenty where a guy realizes that he's going to lose the battle to get to the sideline. The quarterback's going to beat him to the sideline, and so he just gives up. I mean, that, that happened three times against Sanford. 
So it, it shows me, I mean, the players dancing in the locker room at least shows me some level of care that they still have to play for the logo. But the game tape is what really, it, it terrifies me. What are we going to do against Jordan Travis? That guy, I mean, we're talking about Liam Welch just going for 465 total, the fifth most amount of yards Florida's ever let another player, another team get against them. Jordan Travis is going to shatter that. If if we look like if we look that interested in tackling, if we just you know fall down in front of the guy and hope he just trips over a curled up ball of a human being, that's how we're going to tackle. I mean, I, and and this is this is what gets me so mad. These guys are so talented. They're so talented. They're the seventh most talented roster. In college football, according to 247 Sports' composite talent rankings, and yes, I'm well aware of the fact that there is margin for error in that. Because you're the seventh most talented team does not guarantee that you're going to beat the eighth most talented or the ninth or the 12th or the 24th. But to have a team that is this talented that recruits these players that Alabama and Ohio State and Clemson and Georgia and Auburn and Ohio State and Oregon – are all also recruiting to get these players to win these battles and have them look like that. I know they can do better. I know they can do better because Alabama and Oklahoma would not have wanted them if they couldn't. And they've shown it earlier in their careers. Some, I mean, some are exceptions. Zach Carter. I mean, my heart goes out to you, man. You are a baller. You give it all you've got every play. I cannot possibly thank you enough for that. Uh, Mohamed Diabate, that kid goes through a wall or at least would die trying. Uh, and Kyrie Elam didn't have a good game at all against Sanford, but I have reason to believe he's trying his best. I mean, PIs are typically a sign. I mean, when, when the guy beats him, typically a sign that, all right, I got beat. Let's just limit the damage and keep it from being a touchdown. Like you have guys that are trying and you have guys that aren't. And that's, that's the part that's just so frustrating for me as a fan, but more so makes me wonder if Mullen is the guy, because if Mullen is going to be, yeah, we won. Um, or he's going to be the, well, you know, we'll, we'll evaluate that. And, and he's, he's just not, he's not going to put forth the relentless effort that he promised. Then you're not going to have a team that reflects it. And I really, I really think that once you have a team that's lowered its level of effort. Once you have a team that's quit, you don't get them to unquit. You can't get them back. You can't get the versions of them that Oklahoma and Ohio State and Oregon and Alabama and Auburn and Georgia all wanted. You can't get those versions of them back, at least not with this coach. So when I'm saying, yeah, we still have to fire Mullen, it's because I don't think we can uncross that Rubicon. We can't retrace our steps and go back across the point of no return. Because once you have a team that quits on you like that, or if that's not quitting, I don't know what that is, but that's that's not the level of football that these guys were recruited to Florida to play. If we can't get that back, I don't see a reason to keep them. So Dustin, why don't we why don't we put this game to bed forever with a really, really quick final word? South Carolina was the quickest final word ever. This one is going to match it. So I've been talking long enough, so you go first. Player of the game, play of the game, and grades. Yeah, I know uh, 
you're likely going to do Emery Jones. Um, so I, I was hoping to do a different one. But if you are not doing Emory Jones, I'll go with Emory Jones as my player of the game. Uh, assuming you're doing Emory Jones, um, and if you don't do Emory Jones, I'm going to come back and also give Emory Jones a shot, which I'm actually doing right now. But I'm going to go with uh, Kamori Gamble, who had six receptions, 122 yards, and two touchdowns. He played out of his mind. Um, in fact, my favorite play that he had was a play that didn't score a touchdown but went for – you know, without the exact number, I think it went for like 40 yards and uh, it looked great. It was a great throw by Emery and even bigger play by Kimori Gamble. Um, as far as the play of the game, um, I'm actually going to go with the play that uh, Samford uh, had. It was the, um, the kickoff return for a touchdown. And it was that play right there that told me, holy crap, we are in a shootout with an FCS school. And holy crap, this team has problems. And that, that particular play is going to be a huge factor in one of the grades that we hand out, which we'll get to in just a minute. Okay. Um, I was going to pick Emory Jones, but I think we've both, we, we, we've both given him the props he deserves. He was very good. Um, ideally, you'd like to see him be a little more accurate and sometimes a little more uh, safe on some of his throws, like the touchdown pass to Damian Pierce. Um, in the, I never get the north and south end zones right, but the the end zone that has Gators in it, as opposed to Florida, the one on the left of the screen when you're watching on the TV, uh, he has to throw that ball into the back corner of the end zone. I tweeted out a, a screenshot of that. There's a lot of open space in the back half of that end zone that he's got to lead him towards. Instead, he. Under throws it, Pierce has to come back for it, and as a result, Pierce has to go up and win that battle for the ball, whereas it could have just been an easy pitch and catch if he just lobs a rainbow over the defense. But aside from that, Emery was good. He did everything the coaches asked him to do. He was efficient. Um, I mean, the the throwing motion is something that's probably not ever going to get fixed at this point. It's just going to be what it's going to be. Um, I mean, the, the looking off defenders is something that's going to have to be worked on, on this offseason, whether he stays or transfers or whatever he does, he's going to have to fix that. But for what he is, he played a very good game. So I give him props for that. I'm going to actually go with Mordecai McDaniel because, uh, first of all, we'll, we'll go back a week when he's getting into it with South Carolina players. They had a little bit of a scrap towards the end of the game. South Carolina players just pointed at the scoreboard to troll him, but at least that kid played with some heart. And when I when I saw that, I thought, all right, clearly not good that that you're getting into a fight with a team that's blowing your doors off, but at least it shows that there's some effort, that there's some care, there's some heart in there. I really, really am looking for that these last couple of weeks of the year, and he showed it to me fairly early on in, in the, the quit process uh, last week against South Carolina. So I like that, and then he comes up – against Sanford and makes a diving pick off a deflection. And in a game that the defense really didn't do anything right, he made one of the very few plays that are going to go on the highlight reel for this defense. So shout out Mordecai McDaniel for that. Um, And here's hoping you're going to be a bigger part of this defense as time progresses. So you went first for the play of the game. And that's also my play of the game, by the way. Because, you know, big-time players make big-time plays in big-time moments. He's my player of the game because he made the play of the game. So because he went first for those two things, I'm going to go first with the grades. It'll be very quick. 
Offense is the only one that gets a non-F. Offense gets uh, a, offense gets a B because it's hard to give them an A against a team of this caliber. The holes that that Sanford provides Florida to just run through, they're not going to be there against Missouri or FSU. So it's really hard to gauge. But like, if you go back to your <laughs> go back to your school days. Uh, sometimes the professor or the teacher wouldn't even give you a number grade from zero to hundred or letter grade from A to F. They would just give you like a check plus a check or a check minus meaning like check plus meaning you did a really good job check, meaning you did the job check minus being you did the job, but like barely. So it's hard to give a check plus for this because Sanford again, does not recruit. Don't say it with me. They do not recruit the same caliber of athlete that Florida does. But the Gators did the best that they could have possibly done. They put up over 700 yards. They got 70 points. Both of those things are the high marks of the Dan Mullen era. So they get a check for that. I guess that translates to about a B. Defense F. I mean, we, we hit on all the reasons why. All the records Sanford broke. Uh, the pick by Mordecai McDaniel is the reason that, that they don't get a single digit grade. I'll give him like a 15 or a 20 for the defense. Um, special teams F you let them run a kickback. That's an automatic F right there. Because again, why are you not kicking that ball through the end zone? Why are you being cute and kicking it to the seven yard line? Um, and, and at that Chris Howard just sort of lingered around there, did not stay in his lane. Not that a kicker, versus a kick returner is going to be an athletic matchup that favors the kicker, but at least stay in your lane, at least make him have to beat you, at least make him have to make a move to get those last 60 yards and just limit the damage. So F just for that play alone, not that they were especially great elsewhere on the day. I guess Jeremy Crawshaw did his job, but ultimately, yeah, that that's an F. And coaching, coaching is going to get an F, but at least a respectable-ish F. It's going to be one of those like 50 to 55 type Fs. Not not a completely humiliating F. Because, I mean, you could argue that the F was earned, I mean, last December when Mullen brought Todd Grantham back. If you bring in a new DC this year, you don't have to fire Grantham for incompetence nine games into the year. And thus, you're not in a position where this is the first game with a new interim DC. You could have already had your defense humming. But for this particular game, I'll give them like a 50 or 55 because the offensive game plan was adequate it i wouldn't say it was great i would have liked to have seen pierce touch the ball more but ultimately it, it was fine it did its job um emory looked comfortable enough the offensive line looked comfortable enough ethan white coming back helped obviously but i mean the offensive game plan was fine the defensive game plan might have been fine but we just won't know because the defense just wasn't good period talking about the players um and overall uh, I'm, I'm I graduated college in 2016, so it's been a minute. Uh, Dustin, you're gonna have to remind. Well, you're you're my age too. What whatever, whatever the whatever the grade, the lowest possible grade to give you a pass is is what they're gonna get. I don't know if that's a, a 66 or a 65 or a 64.5. I don't know if they give D minuses, but whatever that that bare minimum passing grade is, this team gets, and it's only because of the offense. Everything else was just an abject failure. Offense, 
I mean, again, this was not a good opponent, but nonetheless, the offense did its job, whereas defense, special teams, and coaching did not. So the offense pulled the rest of the program just over that pass-fail line and gave them a passing grade for me. How about you, Dustin? Neil, that would be a 60% if you're you're looking at in terms of the American way of grading, typically an F starts at uh, 59.4%. now, some classes, uh, they may have a weighted average or maybe an F will start a little bit higher depending on how the grades shake out so that the teacher is able to get that nice bell curve um, in terms of their distribution of grades. Anyhow, uh, for offense, I'm going to give Florida an A. They played fantastic. And the way I grade offense, I, have an, I, I look at a team – um, or an opponent, I should say, and I have an expected output. I expect Florida to score somewhere between 50 and 60 points against an FCS team like Samford, um, and they, they exceeded that. They scored 70 points. Now, the fact that they had to score 70 points is concerning, but that's not on the offense. The offense gets an A, and, a, and an excellent A at that. I thought they played great, and they had to play great. Defense. They played awful, okay? That, I mean, I know, I know uh, former players on my, my high school team. Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure if we assembled some former players on, from a high school team um, who haven't played in, in, in several years, and we get them together and form a defense, I'm sure we could play about as well, if not even a little bit better, than how Florida played against an FCS team. Um, F and a awful F, you know, the, as we've mentioned several times on this pod and unfortunately several times referring to this defense, it's the kind of F that if you get that in college, you probably should be dropping the class and uh, you probably should try again next semester. If not completely change your major, because you might not be cut out for, for what is, what has been put before you in terms of that, that class special teams, special teams was not, it was not awful, awful, but that kickoff return was pretty, pretty telling. Of course, it was my play of the game. Special teams gets a D minus for me uh, and a very low D minus, basically identical to the grade that you gave for the whole team. Coaching. <laughs> Coaching. Um, I thought the offense played wonderful, and Dan Mullen is, of course, an offensive guru. And I know that against an FCS team, that's not really the point in time where you're supposed to showcase um, how, how great you are of an offensive mind. Um, but I thought the offensive game plan was excellent. Uh, we, we, the, the field, uh, we threw the ball all over the field. I know we, uh, I'm not the biggest fan of, of screens, but we weren't just throwing screens. We were, we were, we were throwing the ball. We were, we were doing seam routes. We were doing, uh, out routes, slants, corners, posts, um, whatever the defense was given Florida, we were taking and we were doing excellent with it. And I loved what we did um, on the offensive side of the ball. Again, for the 12th time, um, I mentioned that we played an FCS team. Uh, but there are parts of that offense that reminded me of the uh, passing offense that we had in 2020, albeit with some of the the, the best and talent that Florida's had 
since Urban Meyer and, and Tim Tebow were at the helmet with the Florida Gators. Um, but defense was disgusting. So I can't, I, I, I cannot give coaching anything higher than a, than a 50% uh, for coaching. So I'm going to give coaching an F because of that. Because um, performance matters. And when, when you're not just coaching an offense, but special teams and defense are a part of it, got to give them an F. As far as the overall grade deal, I've explained it several times. Um, I create a percentage for all those grades that I hand out. And then I average them and I get my overall. And for this Gator team, though they won, it was against an FCS team. Um, they, according to, an, to the odds makers, Florida should have won by at least 35 points, and they did not. They, they only won, by, if I'm doing my math correctly, 18 points. And that is, that is not cutting it. Um, that is, you know, I, I think that m- most teams in, in the SEC would, would beat. Samford by by more than 18 points and so for that reason my average is coming out to 54 percent uh which is not a passing grade um you know you you can make up for it so maybe next week maybe they can they can beat Missouri and play better um defensively maybe they get a 75 or or an 80 next week and of course if you if you average the two um that's a step in the right direction so that's my grades. Uh, you know how much I enjoy this segment of our podcast. And uh, there you are. There we have it. A um, couple last things before we call it a show. I promised y'all that I would give the Gator basketball team, a team, a program that I have been, um, shall we say, very, very leery of. After what happened at the end of last year, the loss to Oral Roberts was one of the most embarrassing performances in the last last uh, 25% of a game that I have ever seen. You know, th- th- that Oral Roberts game was one of the low points of Gator basketball history, uh, one of the low points in Gator sports history in the last you know decade or so. But Gator basketball, going up against an FSU team that – objectively seemed better the the Knowles were favored the Knowles had also beaten Florida seven straight times including six under Mike White the Gators had the flu this week going into the game FSU seemed to have a height advantage a speed advantage it would have seemed very reasonable to have expected the Gators to come into the game with the right attitude fight hard uh you know try their best put on a good show but ultimately go down to FSU the Gators beat the hell out of FSU. The Gators took that Seminole spear and they snapped it in half. Then they took the halves and snapped them into quarters. They snapped those quarters into eighths, snapped those eighths into sixteenths, and just on and on, you know, to 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 numbers that FSU with their suboptimal educations aren't able to quite comprehend. But good for the Gator basketball team. Good for Mike White good for his players. There is a name that I like to derisively use to refer to Mike White. Uh, this, this game goes against that. This looked like a real, a real power five threat. It looked like a team that's very, very capable of going into March and doing some damage. Now, now this is two games into the year. We've seen the Gator basketball team look 
even more impressive before. I mean, I remember the PK-80 tournament out in Oregon where they should have beaten Duke, didn't, but before that they'd beaten a very good Gonzaga team, looked like a Final Four contender. And then it all came off the rails and they started trading good wins for bad losses. Um, but, but this was a Gator basketball team that showed up despite having the flu. They dove for loose balls. They dominated the boards. The spacing was good. They moved the ball around very well. They out-rebounded FSU. Uh, again, a team that has a height advantage against them. And in crunch time, it was a close game. Gators pulled away and ran away with it, which goes against a lot of the data that we have so far collected against Mike White. So I'll be very clear. This one win and his the adjustment of his record against FSU from 0-6 to 1-6 does not do a great deal to overwrite the fact that Florida has not won the SEC or made a Final Four under White, has not finished in, in the top four of the SEC in the last three seasons, has not made it to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament in the last four seasons, doesn't undo any of that. But this team does look different than what last year's team looked like and what the last few years' teams looked like. They looked like a, a more cohesive unit than anything I've seen since that PK-80 Mike White, you are the head coach. I've been very, very critical of your inability to win at the level that the University of Florida should win at. But nonetheless, this was a very, very impressive showing. Let's keep it up. Let's see if we can keep it going. And, le and let's give myself and, and the other people who, who root for the Gator Athletics Program, let's give the Gator Nation some more good things to talk about. This was a very, very encouraging sign. Yes, to those who think I'm too negative about him, I am capable of giving credit where it's due. He he is due a lot of credit for this showing when his team had the flu. Could have packed it in, could have just not cared, showed up, came out to play, dominated the glass, dominated the last 10 minutes of the game. And yeah, good for you, Mike White. Good for you. So Neil, uh, this is huge. This is the first beating uh, of FSU by the Florida Gators um, since my freshman year of college. And I have since graduated with a degree in aerospace engineering from the University of Florida. And I have been a professional for, for a couple years now. And this is the first win since 2013 that Florida has beaten FSU in basketball. And it's an incredible feeling. I know, I know you want to kind of tone it down because we still have a whole season to, to, to get, a, get a, um, data points, as you say. Um, but this was an excellent game uh, in his back pocket as far as his resume as the coach of the University of Florida. And this is going to continue to buy him time. And I'll just say this. I'm going to support him. You know, I know you, you might be a little different, but I'm not going to talk about firing the guy. Uh, I know he's he's doing a good job. He's he's recruiting well. Um, that's not something that, that Dan Mullen um, can say. And you know, while we're on the on the subject of Dan Mullen, I know it's been said several times, but what must be done eventually must be done immediately. And it's unfortunate that we have to be in this spot. It's unfortunate that uh, the Mullen that we saw in 2019 and even in 20 or 2018 and even in 2019 is not the mullen that we've seen 
since the end of the LSU game in 2020. And for that reason, the Mullen that we're seeing right now is the Mullen that has to go. Uh, will he go? Uh, I'm not sure. The verdict is still out. Will I'm sure this topic will come up again um, later in the season, especially if Florida happens to drop uh, to Missouri or, or, God forbid, FSU. I mean, imagine a season where Florida finally beats FSU in basketball uh, but doesn't beat FSU in football. Um, in fact, I remember that twenty. That 2023, or 2023, oh, that 2013 um, season uh, where Florida lost to Florida State in 2013. So uh, maybe, and unfortunately, beat them in this football the night before, or beat in them football in the night before, exactly. Yeah, yeah, them, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's what, I, what I'm trying to say is, is Florida, even in that year, didn't they, they didn't win the, the same sport. Um, we didn't, we didn't beat FSU in 2013, and we didn't, we didn't beat them. And we, we beat them in basketball. We, we didn't beat them in football. Uh, maybe this is a bad omen for what's to come in two weeks. Well, listen, I'm in, I'm, I'm in wait-and-see mode with Mike White. Um, I, at the end of last season, I said that, that the Oral Roberts game is a fireball offense, and I still stand by it. And like I said, one win over FSU is not going to undo the fact that Florida has been to one – second weekend of the NCAA tournament in the Elite Eight in 2017. They have finished in the top four of the SEC two times in his first six years and none in the last three years. That It doesn't undo the fact that Florida has not ever gotten one of those top two or three-ish seeds so that you get a 215 or a 314 game. You got one 413 game against East Tennessee State, and even that was a bit of an adventure for a while. The, the point is you don't finish ranked in the top 10-ish in the regular season in the AP poll or the coaches poll or, or the NCAA tournament selection committee's poll where they then break down the teams in groups of fours and seed them so that you get an opening game that, yeah, you have to play hard. You have to make sure you don't get embarrassed by a lower team like Ohio State did against Oral Roberts or, you know, Florida Gulf Coast did against Georgetown or Norfolk State did against Missouri and so on, or UMBC Virginia. But you have to put yourself in position so that your first game is relatively easy so you can breathe and you only have one tough-ish game that first weekend and blink your eyes and, oh, wow, we're in the Sweet 16 now, and now things are getting easy, or, or now things are getting hard. So, yeah, one win isn't undoing all of that, but I'm going to sit back and, and wait and see because I do assume it's possible that I jumped the gun a little bit. I don't think so because, I mean, again, we saw a team – three years ago, play really well for a week or two in, in the PK 80 tournament and then fall back down to earth. But I reserve the right to change my opinion on him. If the sum of the results that roll themselves out in the next few months, the rest of the season, change them. I reserve the right to change my mind. If Florida gets a two or three seed in the NCAA tournament wins the sec, or at least finishes a game or so out of the sec uh, top spot. Um, if we make it to the final four, or if we get to the elite eight and lose in overtime on a buzzer beater, you know, I'll give him some wiggle room there. Let's see something like that happen. 
It took a lot more than one bad performance from Mike White to lose my faith in him. It's going to take a lot more than one good win for him to regain it. I said the same thing after they beat West Virginia last year. One performance does not make or break anyone's opinion on a coach, nor should it. But this was a good start. I give him that. Now compare that to where we are with the football coach, Dan Mullen. The the current statuses of Mike White and Dan Mullen are not quite direct polar opposites, but but pretty close. Um, I'm not a big wait-and-see person at this juncture of the year. I was was pretty staunchly saying wait-and-see after Georgia and then South Carolina destroyed us and then Sanford happened. I think we've got all the data we're ever going to get on him. And look, if if you say we need one more year of Dan Mullen with a new DC, a new coaching staff all together, he's got a clean house and, and, you know, get all his assistance. And I'll say, look, I disagree with you. I think we've seen more than enough to know he's not the guy and it really shouldn't have taken him this long to make the moves that he made by firing Hevesy and Grantham, because if it took him that long to fire that batch of incompetent assistants, if this batch doesn't work out or he has to replace them because they go to the NFL, that piece of data tells me, well, combined with the fact that he only fired one coordinator in Mississippi State in nine years, well, he's probably not going to do it again unless he's absolutely forced to, and that you know, ha- having your bull gators or your boosters or even your AD come in your office and say, you're firing this guy or I'm firing you is not ultimately a way to run a football program. But I at least understand that. I don't agree with it, but given what he did in 2018 and 2019 and for much 2020, I can at least make peace with that. The let's wait and see approach, I, I just don't get because – what else are you going to see against Missouri and FSU teams that aren't really that good? I mean, if we beat them, well, we should beat them. I don't think we'll beat either one. And ultimately, if you're still in wait-and-see mode, I don't know that you're ever going to reach a conclusion. I don't know after what we, what we all saw against South Carolina and Sanford, I don't know what else it could possibly take to get you to reach a resolution there. And another thing with Mullen, the fact that he's better than his predecessors in Muschamp and McIlwain is not by any means the bar that we should be attempting to clear. Yeah, those people were incompetent. Being a step or two better than incompetent is ultimately not the Gator standard. And if it's not good enough to uphold the Gator standard, it's not good enough. And the last thing is, who are you going to get that's better? never holds any water. First of all, we're Florida. I don't care who else is in the head coaching market. We can beat all of them out for any coach we want unless there is a direct and deep tie that a certain coach has to the school. Like if Miami fires Manny Diaz and Mario Cristobal decides for some reason he doesn't want to be at Oregon anymore and it's between Florida and Miami, well, he's from Miami. So we probably will lose that battle. But by and large, if you have a coach that is deciding between Florida and USC 
Florida can beat USC for whoever they want. Florida has as deep a checkbook as any. We're in the SEC. That's a big recruiting tool. We're located in the most fertile recruiting state there is in the country. You don't have to fly across the continent to recruit a player that you really want to help your team. I mean, it, it's astounding to me that people have this sort of beta attitude that, oh, we can't compete with, say, uh, I don't know, a Kentucky or a Penn State or an Oklahoma even. We can compete with any school. The coach may not choose us, but you better believe if we call up a coach at any school other than Clemson or Alabama, like Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban are exceptions to this. But if we call up any other coach in the country and say, hey, do you want to come to the University of Florida? They're not going to dismiss us out of hand. They're going to really think about it. They may say no, but they're going to think long and hard about it before turning us down. So at the end of the day, I, I the ship has sailed with Mullen for me. I, could he win me back? Potentially. I mean, these last two games, he, he, he's got to win the last two. There's no, there's no wiggle room there. Um, I, I guess I'd be open to seeing a full season with Anthony Richardson at the helm next year with a new defensive coordinator, but he he's in a position where he's got to win so many games next year to undo the damage he's done this year. I mean, 10 and two is an absolute minimum bar. He has to clear preferably see them go 11 and one, the way the schedule sets up. I, and the way Florida always loses the game, it shouldn't with him. I just don't see it. So I'll always be thankful for what he did as ROC and for putting us back on the map but it's time for someone else to take the torch. And and again, if he proves me wrong, great. I'm just not seeing it given the data that has rolled itself out the last few weeks. Because once a team goes down that rabbit hole of not making it a way of life to suit up and give every ounce of available energy that they have to give, once the team stops doing that, I, I've just never seen a team regain it and get it back. I think that's our show. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Of course, as always, we're proudly partnered with the Gator Good Foundation, the nonprofit organization that works to send an underprivileged Gator fan to the swamp. Aside from 2020, when we did a virtual campaign, we have been bringing Gator fans to the swamp for their first ever football game since 2018. Our 2021 candidate was especially I thought well suited for the award as he was an army veteran who will tragically soon be losing his eyesight due to a rare disease called retinitis pigmentosa. Uh, We are looking to do at least one, if not two such campaigns in 2022. So we are looking for donations. If you would like to donate, please go to gatorgoodfoundation.com and click on the donate button. Second, we are proudly sponsored by Stingray Branding. These folks will put a sting in your marketing and deliver results that will wow your clients. Whether it's web design, logo design, branding, graphic design, social media management, search engine optimization, marketing strategy, or mobile app design, Stingray Branding has you covered. If you or someone you know needs professional help in any of the above, here are two great reasons why you should choose Stingray Branding especially this time of year. It's a veteran-owned business. Can't think of a better way to properly thank those who serve our country than by giving the business. And two, it's run by a Florida Gator fan. So yes, they do great work, but they do great work and they're owned by a Florida Gator fan who happens to be a U.S. veteran. 
To learn more about their services and rates, go to stingraybranding.com. Dustin, you got any final thoughts? Neil, let me just say this. Um, we've said it before, but in all kinds of weather is so vital, not only in terms of it being the name of our brand, but the it's also vital to the attitude of this fan base. And I'm going to say it again. In all kinds of weather does not mean that we're blindly uh, and with exuberance um, supporting every decision that our, that our coaching staff makes. Um, it doesn't mean that we're okay with every play that our players make. Um, but what it does mean is that we're going to support them every step of the way. In the same breath, it also means that we continue to have high expectations and that when the product on the field or I know we spoke about basketball, so I'll include them as well. The product on the court doesn't live up to the expectations that's been set by the program. Um, we need to speak about it, and that's exactly why we have this podcast, so we can discuss truly what it means to be a fan who believes in, in all kinds of weather. And I'm just going to say it. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had a product. Um, on the field that's buried in me screaming go Gators at the top of my lungs. Um, and I, I'm not sure if we will have that. Now, if we beat Florida State, considering the circumstances, you know I'm going to do something. Um, but I will say this. In all kinds of weather, we all stick together for F-L-O-R-I-D-A. And yes, not the best speller in the world, but I still remember how to spell Florida. Thank you so much <laughs> to that song for giving me that, at least that. <laughs> so neil um go gators uh thank you so much for um putting all this together and uh to everybody out there listening uh stay safe be healthy and uh we'll see you next time yes sir to quote sam Pittman, yes sir go gators i am hoping against hope that we have some good stuff to talk about against missouri next week i've got my doubts for sure but hey you know, my doubts have been proven wrong before, so let's do it again. Go Gators!